This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Wonderful voice of Karen Carpenter there. It's 10 past four. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, Joan Nessel established the Lesbian Her Story Archives in New York City, but now lives in Melbourne, and she's a patron of the Australian Gay and Lesbian Archives. Her queer activism stretches back to the late 1950s when she was part of the lesbian bar scene in New York City. And it kind of stepped up a notch in the late 1960s following Stonewall. And she joins me on the line today to discuss Midsummer's Generations of Queer. Welcome, Joan. It's an awesome privilege to have you on 3CR again. Oh, the privilege is mine. It always has been when um, I've shared your radio waves. Joan, last time we spoke, George W. Bush had just been elected president Mm. of the U.S., I have to ask you this. What impacts do you think the Trump presidency will have on GLBTI rights in America? I think um, they're disastrous. And they offers are made that seem to be safety, and then they're destroyed with the next breath, not only for our queer selves, but for anyone um, who expects a caring government. I want to say it's because of a politics of emotional brutality, really, um, of, of decisions of, of who's human and who is not, that we need more than ever for intergenerational conversation from each side, because I'm 78 now, the young keep us going, and we can help give the youth, a sense of endurance and victory. So we need each other more than ever. Uh, Trump and the rising right, which is happening across the Western world, uh, is a very dangerous and precarious time for the subversion, for difference that will be seen as anti-nationalist. Joan, you've been a queer activist since the late 1950s. What's the strongest lesson you have learned during your time as an activist? You know, James, I I, I have not prepared anything for this talk, uh, for this conversation tomorrow. And this is one reason, because I think the deepest thing I have learned is to listen. Because we get so sure that we knew what, we're so sure about what we thought we were doing And sometimes we're very sure about what others should do. And the most profound thing I can say to you is is that I'm still listening. I'm so excited to be part of this conversation because I do not know any of the other um, participants. And that, to me, is crucial to me because I will learn something every minute. So I think the most thing I've learned is that be ready for complexity Be ready to think again. Beware of nostalgia, but hold on to memory. Things like that, James. 
Midsummer's Generations of Queer is a conversation about what cross-generational dialogue does and what it could do better. What do you think we could generally do better in that area in the queer communities? Well, you know, this is, I'm not an expert on this, and I particularly, this is a different cultural setting for me. So I'm only going to speak from my age group. All right. And even that, you know, there's, this is a time where generalizations come easily and they can be polarizing. I, but I think older, I'll talk about lesbian feminists particularly because that was my um, political set in a way, need to, need not to fear um, their disappearance. They need not to fear that Everything we worked for is being uh, is not appreciated. We need to start learning and accepting new languages, new his, uh, the historical struggles that are happening now. Because as a people struggle, they immediately become history. Um, we need so that I am concerned. That's why, but I'm also I'm concerned about. I, I have to hear what younger generations think someone of my age can give them. And I have to be honest in thinking of what we need to hear from them and then not to make false promises, not to have pretend wisdom. I mean, the hardest thing about being human is that we yearn so deeply and we can be so wrong, but we can, we can recover and we can give hope to each other. Joan, you were part of the lesbian bar scene in New York City in yes. the late 1950s. What was it like on that scene back then? Oh, oh honey. I always say, read my a restricted country. <laughs> um, it was... I, I, it's such a huge question, James. Yeah, okay. yeah. But what it was, was it like survival. for you? Well, I, yeah, that's... I mean, it was... I was young... I was full of lust. I was always working. I was, uh, and I, I think class is very important. Um, I was willing, and this where it was the desire of the my femme body to find the touch that it so yearned for, and the only place I could find that were in these policed um, bars of Greenwich Village in the fifties. Other people saw them as dangerous, and yes, there was always danger because we were deviants. We were uh, criminalized. We were pathology. But for me, it was theater of the most profound kind. It's where I learned to take on the state, and that was to the point of view of even what clothes we wore because at that time, if you wore cross-dressing was illegal, and if you wore three, piece, if you weren't wearing three pieces of what was designate, designated as your own gender, and that was a complexity, you could be arrested. And I, when I entered lesbian, the lesbian feminist world, and that's I'm sort of like a talking rock. What I mean by that is I'm a piece of queer archaeology because, uh, and really another important thing I've learned—it's all coming to me, James. So you're helping me for tomorrow. Oh, that's good. Is that is that is don't give away any part of yourself that increased your humanness. So when I say, you know, I came out as a queer femme and then I was a lesbian femme, 
it is not about you jettison something. No. So I have all these slices of experience. So learning in those bars that a people's desire could be stronger than a state's hatred. And that is something that came in good stead during the uh, marriage campaign, um, uh, vitriol and hatred that was coming out. So that I learned. And I learned how I was 17, you know, how I could, how I, I could take on the police, how I could help my comrades survive. And that carried me into the civil rights movement. It carried me into other liberation struggles. How so, did you take on the police? I find that fascinating. Just going to those bars, because these were policed bars. So every night, the cops would come in, and you knew this. You knew that it was, it was a, um, like a, a game of chess. Who would be arrested? Who would be beaten up? Who would you have to defend? We had, we had support. We always had a number that we could call. This is still the time of police raids. It was the time of the vice squad. It was a time I stood on a bathroom line every time getting my allotted amount of toilet paper. And all I can say, if you, I've written most of my early writing came from this time. So, um, it was, people have perhaps a better sense of what it was for gay men, but Lesbian women, butch femme women, were, and many who worked in very, um, what would be, you know, subsistent jobs, as passing women. So there was also the gender uh, fluidity conversation. Sex workers were part of my world. Um, You took on the police because the bars were illegal, and the only way they could exist was the police had worked out something with the organized crime groups that ran these bars. And so you had a cop coming in um, every Saturday night to get his payoff, which he would see. And he'd, we, we were only allowed to dance together in a back room. And that back room had a red light in the ceiling. And when the red light went on, that was the bartender flashing us the message that the cop was on his way. And sure enough, so you could be arrested if you were dancing together as a same-sex couple. So sure enough, um, the cop would come in, and every time he would pick out one, particularly a butch woman, who incensed him, particularly if she was with a very uh, a beautiful femme woman. And w- we would see things like he'd take her outside and push her up against the wall and say, so you think you're, you're a man and, and make her drop her pants. These were... These were moments that we went through as a collective. And when people say, Where did, how did Stonewall happen? This is how Stonewall happened. It got to the point, as I got my allotted, I've written my allotted amount of toilet paper, that at some point, at some point, we would rise up as a people. And when we were rising up, I, so were others. So the 60s was that unique time, and they will have to come again, at least in Trump. In, I call it Trumbull, which I realize now is Trump in Turnbull. But um, anyway, James, I hope I'm making sense. You certainly are. Joan, you mentioned the importance of class on the bar scene in, in New York in the late 50s. Yes. 
I imagine that's very, very important still today. But um, can you elaborate on that? Why was class so important back then? Well, first of all, it was important because it was real. It was our lived life. So class determined how safe you were. Middle class and, and upper class women could have had house parties. Professional women in the 50s, 40s um, could do things in a different way. But working class women had to go to these public places. That was the only place where we could be with what we call kindred spirits or with women who our desire could be fulfilled with. And so we, many of us, like in my own growing up, uh, I, I was used to police because of their intrusion into my own, I grew up with this, uh, never knew my father, so my mother and my brother both who had um, police involvement, criminal involvement of different for different reasons, of different kinds. For many working class people, uh, we never expected the state to be our protector. And so, in some odd way, we carved out that public territory before anybody else did. And I mean we, I don't mean Joe. I mean the Butch Femme working class people across America, and, and I won't speak for here and I won't speak for any place else, took on the police because as working-class people, they have had to take on the state in so many ways before. So you didn't expect, so my colleagues, as I said, were sex workers, taxi drivers, um, people, stockroom clerks, people, women and, and others, passing women, um, doing the most survival jobs, and also not having access to money, uh, to hire lawyers, so everything was precarious. But the one thing that wasn't precarious, and also being working class. Now, again, that's an overgeneralization. But you, I started working when I was 13. I was in the public world since I was 13 trying to take care of myself. It's very hard to, to allow the state to take away your own body, which is what your desire, where your desire resides, when you know when you've been working to take care of yourself, so there's a lot of complexities to being mm. working class. But there's no, I don't want to overgeneralize because people do that. They they say, oh, uh, you sound too educated to be working class. Well, you know, you know how many working class people taught themselves to read and live on ideas. Mm. I mean, there are stereotypes that come with these certainties. So, but you can see. You can see what's happening here, and that it's hard for me to stay in one area of resistance. So you ask me, what have I learned? Resistance is like breathing. That's why feminism is always essential to me, no matter what other adjectives I use, femme, queer, feminist. When you breathe, when you breathe the air of resistance, connects you to larger and larger winds of change. So it's never just your own liberation. You become part of other people's liberation as well. Joan, to what extent was the Stonewall Uprising in 1969 a working-class queer uprising? Uh, It definitely was, because nobody... Well, I shouldn't say that. I can't, again, I can't speak for the, you know, the, uh, the 
generations of gay men who went there, and there could be some, you know, middle class. There's always rough trade, and, and but definitely when the street, the people who took to the streets were working class, transgendered people. That was one of the first betrayals of the gay liberation movement. When they were exiled, the same people who took on the police. Um, so it was uh, it was a bar that was not um, that was not the site of of um, it, it was a working class bar, and these bars were typecast, you know. So I went to the Sea Colony, and that was a working class lesbian bar, um, and it was street young street people. Uh, who frequented, you know, who were plying their trades in different ways. So, it, and it was that anger that had built up over the years. But it was also the sense that we live on the street, so, you know, you're not going to scare us. Now that we've achieved marriage equality in Australia, what do you think the main focus of the LGBTI community in this country should be in terms of activism? You know, James, if I answer that like I know, mm. I would be breaking one of my own really? understandings. Really? Yes, because first of all, I'm not Australian. Secondly, I can I will never speak for another generation about how they make their way to what their priorities should be. I can speak for what it does and doesn't seem to me. And one of the questions I will I hope we'll talk about is what what is a post-marriage queer-resistant world like? What do you think it's like? I, I, for me, at 78, hmm. and I've been with my partner, die for 20 years, I find it actually regressive. Really? But you see, I'm afraid to say these, I'm not afraid, but I don't want to set up a conversation that's so one-sided, just me. Uh, and I don't want to set up, you know, lines of conflict before I hear other voices. But for what it, for me, it feels like whole new exiles have been created. So, so When you say exiles, what do you mean by exiles? Ghettos? I mean, queer people who don't fit what seems to be the new expectations of queer people. So I've already had things like... The white oh, picket you must, fence thing. What, honey? Oh, the white picket fence kind of, you know, marriage children. Exactly, or yeah. like, you know, oh, so you're going to get married now? No, and so then, well, what's wrong with you? Why, why don't you want to get married? So, you know, we used to talk about shame, that the that we lived, we were a people of shame, and now so now there's new shames. We've created new shames, or um, the expectations of, yes, of a kind of domesticity, a kind of, well, our love is real now. What does that mean? Because, the, see, I'm getting into trouble. I, I, I want to save this. I don't want to foreclose discussion. You know what I mean, James? So Absolutely. When I'm, mine is the only voice now, so and I know what I think, but I need to hear. I need to hear. Joan, you'll be part what of... younger people think. You'll be part yeah. of a, a, a conversation... I believe it's tomorrow with Generations of Queer. Can you give us yes. the details so people can rock along if they choose? Well, honey, you know, I, I don't have... I'm, That's I'm all right. They, could just, they could just Google it. Midsummer's Generations of Queer. Right, but I think it's sold out. But I would say come anyway. <laughs> but <laughs> because it can always, people can always stand and somebody can sit on my lap or I can sit on someone's. But um, 
I think it's 2.30 to 6.30, and it's at the Darkland Library. Oh, yes. Harbour Drive, I believe, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have that. Yeah. Joan Nestle, it's been a great privilege talking to you today on 3CR. Let's not wait another 17 years to do it, though. Oh, no, James. I, I feel like I know you. I know your voice. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you live in and, Brunswick, and I think. I've seen you around as well. Oh, well, always come up and say hello. And, and give, we can set it. I'll talk, I'll, talk at the, I'll talk again anytime you want me, James. That would be a great privilege. Okay. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been awesome chatting to you. And good luck tomorrow. I know it's going to be a huge success. Thank you, James. Thank you all so much. Okay, Great bye. Pleasure. Bye. And that was the iconic Joan Nestle talking about her queer history, her story. And she will be part of Generations of Queer, which is a midsummer cross-generational uh, dialogue. And uh, if you want to go to midsummer.org.au, you can get the details. It is 4.30. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Up next, I'll be talking to feminist Muslim artist Ms. Safay. Uh, love her work. But in the meantime, we have more music. This is Chicks on Speed, and you're listening to 3CR. No one noticed you had disappeared It's been two days, no connection Pile of hardware, making hits If the quality is high At the parties, there's a place for you On the guest list, there's a place for you In a somebody's Unused toys of the mind 
We think improvement, a better feeling generated, accelerating. That was a strange movie you took me through. He's a finder of strange things. Random, no, 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 cardboard box in the closet. Left untouched for future functions. Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Yep, it's an awesome program. Check it out. Women on the Line here on 3CR. It's 4.36. You're in your face on 3CR with James. And I'm really privileged to have Safe in the studio who is an artist whose work focuses on feminism and strong Muslim women. Welcome to the 3CR studios. Thank you for having me. You're a mural artist. How did that begin? <laughs> well, I'm a printmaker to start with, and in printmaking you always do tests on newsprints. So by my second year of undergrad um, visual arts, I had all of these newsprints laying around, and I just didn't know what to do with it. And there was this little pub down the street from me in Newtown, I walked by and they had bare walls and I walked in and I said, do you guys want some wall on your arts? And they're like, yeah, sure, why not? So I started doing smaller things indoors 
And then a friend of mine asked me um, if I wanted to do a street art mural. I'm like, yeah, I've never done one, but yes, please bring it on. Of course I'll do it. Um, and then that's how I started doing big murals. And Brunswick, the one in Brunswick East um, at 313, the Moroccan Delicacy, was my first one. And that was in 2016. Your work debunks myths about the oppression of Muslim women. How compatible is uh, feminism with Islam? Um, I think it, I, I feel like every time anyone asks me how compatible feminism with Islam, you're setting up, you're setting the question in a in a very Murky polarizing way. way, polarizing yeah, way, right. and, and which is for, how the media often does things, isn't yes. it? Yes, um, for me, anything can be fem- feminist if it's by choice. If I decide to put something on my head, it, it, it's feminist. If I decide to take it off, it's feminist. As long as it's my decision, it's feminist. It has nothing to do with religion, really. It's I think it's all about choice. And there's so much stereotyping of Muslim women. I mean, Muslim women clearly are not a homogeneous group, and I think that diversity is often not reflected in the media commentary. That's right. What kind of emotions come up for you when when you come across that, that stereotyping of Muslim women by the media? Um, most of the time I roll my eyes so hard. <laughs> they go in the back of my head, but... Um, I I get frustrated because there's no shortage of outspoken, articulate, educated Muslim women who can um, be on example for on television speaking for themselves instead of experts in the field speaking for them on and on top of them and on their behalf. Um, media has been a little better lately. Um, I can't say I've been rolling my eyes too hard these days. But you get, yeah, every once in a while you get a piece or two that, you know, you're like, where where did you get this information from, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Yesterday was International Day of the Hajib. Hajab, yeah. Yeah. Um, how, tell us about the religious significance of the Hajib. Um, the Hajab is, uh, I, I, I don't, let me start with saying I don't wear one, Um but my mother wears it with conviction. It was her choice. My dad tried to take it, tell, tell her that she has the option to take it off. She didn't take it off. So she always had the option to take it off. Hijab is, I believe, is about modesty. And modesty can be, um, can manifest in different, many different ways. So f- to me, modesty is maybe just not wearing a bikini when you're shopping or, <laughs> you know, when you, when, like dressing appropriately for your pla- for, for the place and for the time. That's modesty to me. For others, it's covering up exposed skin. Um, yeah, I think in Islam, it's, it, it's, it means modesty. And f- there's a lot of different, um, interpretations of how it should be worn, when it should be worn, and uh, I don't really know because I don't cover. (laughs) I'm fascinated by your dad wanting your mum to take the hijab off. What was his reason? Um, He, I can't remember what his reasons were, but he he told her, I asked him once, like, do I, will I have to, when we travel, will I have to wear it? He's like, no, you do whatever you want. When in Rome, do what the Romans do. Um, and f- for my grandfather, actually, 
which is my mom's father, when we would travel, he would tell us instead of standing out, just try to blend in so you don't attract too much attention um, to you. And that was like 50s and and 60s and 70s when they used to travel um, way before, you know, Islamophobia and the too much attention. So he was a bit of a visionary, sort of. Um, yeah, my dad was was a progressive Muslim. He didn't practice too much, but he, he believed. Um, he was a believer, and he always thought that treating others with respect and dignity and... Uh, and generosity is what Islam is all about, what religion is all about. So, yeah, I think his religion rubbed off on me. One of the stereotypes that, that the media often pushes, and it seems to be entrenched in Australian culture to varying degrees, is that is that men determine what Muslim women wear. That's clearly not true. I mean, in some... Like, we still can't generalise. It's true in some cases, and it's not true in, in other cases, like you just mentioned, we're not one homogenous group, and men are not Muslim men are not one homogenous group either. For example, I have members in my family who would not even listen to music, but their brothers would let their allow their wives to leave the house without covering their faces, for example. So, especially in Saudi, I'm from Saudi Arabia, so there's a lot of. Um, contradictions within society you'll see or, or polarization you'll see people who you know don't wouldn't care about what others say and you'll see people who would just look over their shoulder because they don't want anyone to see them doing anything um but yeah what are your memories of saudi arabia when you were there as a child uh i had really good memories in saudi i I lived a very active childhood, so my dad and I and my brothers would would go out camping and we'd go to the beach and we'd, I'd play soccer with the boys, I'd drive bicycles, and uh, my mom did the same with us. Like she, we we would go climbing, climb, mountain climbing, and she would do it in her hijab. And although there's no one around, she still kept it on. Um, yeah. Why was that? Um, I don't know. She's like, well. If I'm going to keep on taking it on and off, it's going to be inconvenient. I might as well just keep it on. And it's good because it's too hot and sunny. So <laughs> protected her head. <laughs> One of the stereotypes about Saudi Arabia is that everyone's rich, but that's not oh, true. God, yes. <laughs> no, only the select few, the elite and the political elite are rich. Um, and now the rich, the one rich person is getting richer and everyone is getting poorer, even the rich ones. <laughs> so poverty is widespread. Yes, we have people living under poverty lines in Saudi Arabia, unfortunately. Some parts of Riyadh are, look like they are from some, God knows, like they're so poor. Um, people living in tin houses and have no infrastructure and no sewage and um, even sometimes the police can't go there. And then you'll see two streets over the palaces and the cars and all that stuff, yes. And there's a lot of foreign workers there. How oppressive is that for them working in Saudi Arabia? Oh, where do I start? Okay, so domestic workers have it. The worst um, female domestic workers because they have very little rights. So we, they come to Saudi Arabia and their employer would 
take their passport and they're not allowed to leave and let's, and, and until the, their employer gives them back their passport. I'm not too sure about the rules now, but for example, if the employer is abusive, how is this person going to go report them? They can't. Um, if they want to leave, if they don't want to work there anymore, they don't have legal power to go, I don't want to work here anymore because you're abusive, or for whatever reason, if they just change their mind, for whatever reason, and they just want to leave, they can't leave. It's very sad. So there's a hierarchy of rights in Saudi Arabia. There's men, and there's women, and there's female domestic workers who have it, I think, the worst. Do you think you could ever live there again? Um... That's a very tricky question because I think if I go back, I'll get arrested. Um, be- because of your ass? Yes, because of my art, actually. Um, if, uh, two years ago, it went viral and I was reported to Saudi authorities. And then Saudi authorities, in turn, have refused to renew my passport twice and also sort of refused to give me a police certificate. So they're not really liking me at the moment. So I don't think so. <laughs> What's the significance of a police certificate in Saudi Arabia? Oh, it's just a. Uh, it's just I needed to apply for PR, and immigration needed a police certificate from Saudi. So your your government wanted to make sure I'm not a criminal, <laughs> and and yeah, and I just uh, I told them I've exhausted all my uh, resources and I can't I can't get it. They were just telling me we're not going to give it to you. You don't have a valid passport. I'm like, well, you're not giving me a valid passport. You're not renewing my passport. Where do I go? Yeah. So do you find the so-called world on war on terror and the hysteria surrounding terrorism has made it hard for you as a Saudi person living in Australia? No, not not so much. I think I think the war on terror is just horrific for visibly Muslim women everywhere because they're the ones who are at the front line of, you know, anywhere like you go you go to places where there's less tolerance and muslim women in a hijab are the one who cop it the most uh, are the ones who um get abused get spat on get their hijab um uh, pulled off their heads i honestly don't feel like i have um struggled as much with the war on this whole thing called war on terror because i i don't look i don't look muslim and even when i tell people saudi arabia they go what south africa and i just nod <laughs> you know so i get away with a lot more than um visibly muslim women just because my hair is half shaved and i don't cover and i sort of dress like a i don't know in my active wear all the time <laughs> If you were to go back to Saudi Arabia and you did a mural like the one in East Brunswick mm. depicting strong Muslim women, what would happen to you? Um, if I make it through immigration and the borders... Um, Which sounds unlikely. <laughs> so I'm just going to humor you. Um, and if I do, um, I don't know. It would have If I have to do it and I do it safely, it would have to be somewhere indoors um, with private... Po- public viewings for the select few, unfortunately, in an underground scene, not publicly. Is there much of such underground scenes in Saudi yes, Arabia? Yeah, yes. tell us about well, them. Well, I can't tell you much because it's underground, um, but no, but like I don't want to get people in sure, trouble, but there's, but there's a rich, very 
uh, culturally rich and diverse underground scene where poets go and recite poetry and uh, musicians go play gigs and um, and and dancers and artists and where you know culture is is very rich but in the past year and a half things have been sort of opening up a little so it's not so much under underground um, there's a visual arts scene that's that's been brewing in the past five or six years in Saudi. Um, yeah, it's, things are happening in Saudi, but they're only happening for the people who are already privileged. So women who have amazing male guardians, for example, who allow them to travel, who allow them to study, who have money to do stuff. But the women who are disadvantaged um, are are not really um, benefiting from all this openness and progress that's the so-called progress happening in Saudi Arabia right now. What's causing that that openness that you mentioned? Uh, it's political, really. The new crown prince, who is, I think, 30 years old, he's very young and um, I would call him immature as well. Um, but he's, uh, he's trying to open up Saudi Arabia so it's a little uh, less conservative. But he's doing it in a very weird way. So he's taking money from the rich and putting it in his pocket. Um, and the people love him Um, everyone loves him just because women are now going to be allowed to drive this year Um, they allowed um, they allowed women to go to um, uh, soccer games and uh, stadiums they're allowing concerts and all of these are super very superficial changes in the country and we still, we're, women, Saudi women are still waiting for guardianship laws to be revoked. Because like I said, you know, you can do all of these cosmetic changes, but the real, the real um, reason Saudi women, I feel, are oppressed is because their guardians have control over them. And if that's not revoked, I don't care what you do for, in the country, it's still going to be bad for women to live there. You mentioned the underground art scene in Saudi. Does your work have a following there? Um, actually, it's so funny because a few years when I went to Saudi last, I went to one of those gigs underground and it was pretty underground at the time. And I walked in and um, I was just introducing myself. My name is Safa. And, and they're like, oh, my God, you're the I am my own guardian girl. I'm like, yeah, my name is Safa. Oh, my God, look, look who's here. The I am my own guardian girl because my image has has been floating around the Internet. And, yeah, maybe a little bit of a following, um, but... Just in 2016, one of my images went viral and I have a bit of a following back home. Um, Women have found my art to be inspiring and, um, yeah, and I feel like it's it's great that they have found it to be inspiring and um, because I was making art for them. I wasn't making art to please the art institution or anyone, you know, who is... Like, I was actually making art for them by me, but, yeah. So I don't make art to please anyone uh, except for the people who the art is about. Tell us about the I Am My Own Guardian theme, because that's something that keeps popping up with your work. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big part of it. Yes. Um, so in, in 2012, uh, before I upset my government, I had a scholarship 
Um, so I was sponsored by the Saudi government, and one of the conditions that only apply to women was to have my male... One of the conditions to have a scholarship was to have my male guardian here uh, with me in Sydney, because I, I study in Sydney. And they kept on asking me, where, where is your male guardian? Where is your male guardian? And I, my, my brothers are my male guardian, and they were in Saudi, and I didn't want to just fly them across the world and inconvenience them and all of that stuff. And, like, I can't just tell my brothers to drop their lives and come stay with me in Sydney just so I can finish my degree. So that's how it started. I'm like, dude, I am my own guardian. <laughs> I'm I'm 30-something years old. I don't need a male guardian. I am my own guardian. <laughs> and that's how it started. So I created this visual of a woman dressed in a male Saudi male headdress and the word I am my own guardian in Arabic and English um, go across the face. And yeah, ever since, um, it's been floating on the internet and uh, yeah, it's taken, taken off around two years ago. Your work is extraordinary. How can people see it? Um, well, Here in uh, Melbourne. Yes, in Melbourne. Well, come in two weeks to 313 Ligon Street. There will be a mural there. Um, it will have uh, at least 10 new portraits on it. Uh, last Two years ago, or last year, I think last year, the mural in Brunswick was defaced, and I was very upset, so I'm back here to redo it. So come um, in two weeks and see what I've done. Just don't <laughs> don't deface it. <laughs> and I imagine if people um, Google I Am My Own Guardian, your extraordinary work will come up. Yes, and I'm on Instagram. Follow me. I put all my work on there. I don't have a website yet, but that's in the future plans, hopefully. <laughs> Safa, it's been a great privilege talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me today on 3CR. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.